today as we're working our way through the book of Ephesians, we come to chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Now, if you are just joining us, and to those who have been here, I want to remind you that the first three chapters have been on just what Christ has done for us. He's just dumping on us all the blessings in heavenly places, and he's just letting us know how much he loves us and how beloved we are and how rich in Christ we are and how secure in our salvation we are. But as we now begin in chapters 4 through 6, we are now going to see what we are to do for Christ, how we are to live for Christ. And so again, in those first three chapters, there's never been a statement, therefore, here's how you need to live. Here's what you must do. It's been up to this point, all that God's done for us. So now as we are entering chapter four, there's going to be a clear shift. And I might add, this isn't all of Paul's letters, which is half of the New Testament has this way of lining things up. First section is all that God's done for us. We're rooted in his love for us. And then he says, now here's what you must do. This is how you must respond to God and how God would like you to live in response to his love for you. Why? Because he wants us to walk in freedom. He wants us to have liberty. He doesn't want us to be bound up in sin and grieved. And so just remember as we head into this, his yoke is easy. His burden is light. First John said, those who love God, the commands of God are not burdensome. And that's the way it should be. But guys, an important note before we go on. Our response in obeying God must be in response to his love for us. Nothing else will do. He is not saying live this way so you're religious. And you're in his little religious form. And we can walk around and go, man, you're not in our religious form. You're not a good person. That's, that's the opposite. Those kind of people hated Jesus. Those are the people that arranged Jesus to be killed. Religious people hated the fact that Jesus wasn't religious. He didn't wear the religious garb. He didn't keep their traditions, not the Bible. He obeyed the Bible, but he didn't keep their traditions, which they thought was equal or even more important than the Bible. We are not to obey God out of paranoia or of fear that we might be rejected by God if we don't do this, or we'll lose our salvation if we don't do this or obey this way, and, and we have this certain, certain lifestyle. Calvinism, we've talked about that. They have in one of their tents the persistence of the saints, and this is what they do. When somebody is not living the way they should as a Christian, they insinuate, maybe you were never saved to begin with, because how is it you're struggling like this if you are a Christian. Christians don't behave like that. So therefore, I must conclude that maybe you were never saved. You should doubt that. And boy, okay, I, I, I repent. I, I'm getting, I'm doing it now. And what is it? It's a, it's a response of paranoia and fear that maybe I was never saved. Guys, I, I can't tell you how everything Jesus said 
was to get rid of that paranoia and fear because you really can't walk in faith and salvation if you're not certain of your eternal destiny. So understand, obeying God doesn't confirm your salvation. Obeying God doesn't add to your salvation. Obeying God doesn't make you more saved. And I might, on the flip side of that coin, say disobedience doesn't cancel out our salvation. Well, Christians can't live that way. Oh, yeah, they can. Christians can live in the flesh just like a non-believer. Read the Bible, guys. David, the man after God's own heart, committed adultery and murdered. He was a believer. He was certain he was going to heaven. But man, uh, believers don't do that. Believers can do anything that any non-Christian can do. The things we don't want to do, we do. The things we do want to do, we don't do. Yeah, it's horrible. That, but yet, God never takes away even a tiny bit of our free will. You see, that's what I wish the Lord had said. The moment you get born again, it's your choice. I can take away all your free will and make you a robot of perfect obedience. Anybody want to sign up for that club? Yeah, take my free will away. All I can do is obey you. I'd love that. I cannot think of a thought to sin. My body starts to sin. How did I get here? You know, last I remember I was walking into the bar and now I'm at church. How did that happen? I'm at a prayer meeting. I didn't even know this was a prayer meeting. Boy, I, man, sign me up for that. But it just doesn't happen, does it? The reality is we have a free will, complete sphere. We got to take it a day at a time. Uh, today, anew, afresh. Had a great day yesterday. Doesn't guarantee you're going to have one today. Well, isn't yesterday going to just sort of spill in today? Uh, it won't hurt, but uh, no, it, it doesn't guarantee anything. Today, I've got to again deny myself. I got to then beat my body into subjection. Again, I need to recognize, I need the power of God, the love of God, the strength of God to overcome the things I don't want to do that I might do and the things I do want to do I don't do. I need God's power afresh and new today. And guess what? His mercies are new every morning. Brand new slate. Yesterday was a horrible day. It doesn't spill in today. That's good, isn't it? I mean, I, I just love, you know, dogs. You can yell at it and kick it and then, Ten minutes later, it doesn't remember. It's just, oh, I'm so happy to see you. It's like, really? I thought you'd be a little less happy. No, 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 I'm just as happy. <laughs> That's the way God is just always for us, never against us. God is always forgiving us. His blood is constantly flowing to wash us away from all sin. Well, that, that is if you walk in the light as he is in the light. See, people say, oh, that, that means perfection. But listen to the verse in 1 John. It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then what has that verse end? The blood of Christ will continually cleanse us from all sin. If walking in the light as he is in the light meant we don't sin, then why do we need the blood of Christ to keep cleansing us from all sin? In essence, he assumes that as we're trying to walk in the light as he is in the light, we're still sinning. We're still struggling with this human flesh, which we do, don't we? So Ephesians tells us it's a gift of God. It's not of ourselves. It's not of works. 
We studied this and have quoted this. You guys, I hope you have this memorized, right? It, the grace has been safe through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And what do we learn about this gift of God in Romans eleven twenty nine? The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. If you study it out, salvation's a gift, salvation's a calling. We got to cover both sides, both sides of the coin. Well, I thought salvation was a calling. It is. I thought salvation was a gift. It is. Whichever side of the coin you flip, it's irrevocable. It cannot change. It cannot be reversed. It cannot be undone. Your name is in the book of the life, and there's no erasers in heaven. Your name's in there. Disobedience doesn't end our salvation. It doesn't stop by your eternal life. We shall never perish. We shall have eternal life. John 3.16, we've said it probably every week. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever repents of their sins and lives obediently shall never perish but have everlasting life. Does that sound right? Whoever believes and then afterwards lives a consistent, obedient Christian life until the day they die will never perish and have everlasting life. It doesn't say that either, does it? Do you know in the gospel of John, the word repent is not even one time? It's whoever believes. The thief on the cross, the guy sinned, even blaspheming Jesus as they're walking down the Via Della Rosa to the place Golgotha, both thieves were mocking Christ. Then the thief was hung on the cross. This guy has spent his whole life sinning. He's such an incorrigible thief, they have to crucify him. And even on the cross, where people usually are sober before they're going to get tortured, (laughs) before they die, people are usually a little sober-minded. Even the hardest of criminals will will freak out when they're being dragged to the electric chair or the gas chamber or whatever it is. But this guy has energy to mock Jesus while on the cross, blaspheming him. But then he comes to his senses and he hears Jesus say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Whatever it was, faith came in his heart. And he believed. Did he repent? I don't know. His prayer didn't sound like he repented. He just responded to the love and the kindness and the mercies of this guy next to him. And he came to believe that he was Lord, that he was going to raise from the dead Jesus, Lord. Look at all three Gospels. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. He believed. He shall not perish. He shall have everlasting life. Because, well, he repented and then he lived this obedient Christian life. He never got a chance. But it didn't matter because salvation's not hinged on that. Do you understand? Salvation is hinged on one thing, believe. He believed Jesus was Lord and believed that God raised him from the dead. And he also believed that Calvary Chapel is the only right church. I'm sure of it. You you got to get the Chuck Smith study Bible to get that, but of course not. It was that simple. Today, Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise. You shall not perish. 
even though you were a reckless, sinful, degenerate, blaspheming in the last hour of your life. (laughs) Blaspheming the Christ who loves him and was going to die on the cross for him, blasphemed him. He still is going to be in heaven with you and I. Because if you believe, you shall not perish. It didn't say you have a good chance you won't perish. And you have a good opportunity to have eternal life. You're on the right track now. You're on the right track, you don't perish. You're on the right track, you may not. We have to see. We've got to see what your life looks like after you believe whether or not you won't perish. He doesn't hinge it to anything. He easily could have, right? I mean, that verse could easily say a wonderful, joyful thing. Many, many people who believe in him, that's, that's generous, is it not? Many people who repent and walk obediently, not everybody, but many who do, the majority, we say that, that would be generous. The majority of people that believe and repent and walk in obedience and serve God till the day they die most likely will not perish and probably will have eternal life. Would anybody argue with God on that? We, we would say that's very generous. That's, very, that's a very good gospel. But our Lord Jesus was crazy, emphatic. Never perish. Will absolutely with certainty have eternal life. John 5, 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has each everlasting life. He who believes in him, the one who sent me, now believe in the Father who gave his only begotten Son, shall not come unto judgment. Do you hear how extreme that is? Never going to happen. Not a chance of it happening. But it has passed from death to life. It's already happened. If you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you've already passed from death to life. You shall live. And though you may die in the body, you shall Never die. The real us is not this carcass, right? My carcass is dying. Good. Sooner the better. Because the real me, the real Brian, if I could take this body off and you could see my spirit and you see the Holy Spirit in my spirit and you see it's eternal now. It was death. My, My soul was dark. My spirit was dead. But now my spirit is alive and will be alive for all of eternity. My spirit is here. And if I could look into heaven, you'd see my name written there because I'm worthy. No. Because I've, I've earned it by merit. No. Because I'm such a good person. No. It was just a gift of God out of his mercies and his kindness and his love, he wrote my name in the book of life. But now once I leave this carcass, I'm alive and I'll be immediately in the presence of the Lord. I mentioned David who went through a very, King David who went through a very dark time in his life, 
adultery. And then he murdered her husband because she was pregnant and her husband wouldn't have sex with her in the middle of wartime. And so he, he, had, he had to kill him so then David could marry her and, 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 and try to take the shame away and try to, and try to get the, 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 the story smeared over so it wouldn't be obvious that he had done such horrible, evil things. David went through a year of hell because he thought God's mercy is in every morning, but not for a guy like me. God forgives, but not adultery and murder. He went through hell. And he finally comes and he writes Psalms 23. And you guys know that Psalm. But he ends it by saying this. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I what? Will, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. What? Forever. This is a guy in the Old Testament who's looking to the mercies of the Messiah that will one day come. And he's saying, I, even though I've, I've blown it so many times in my life, I have so many deep valleys in my life, yet he loves me. And he's going to see me through. He's going to get me there. Not by my holiness and righteousness shall earn my way to eternal life. That's not what he says, is it? He has faith in God. Because of God's love for me. Because of God's goodness towards me. Because of God's mercies upon me. I am going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Certain. Not a, not a doubt. Not a question. Well, David, you haven't finished living your life. You still got a good 20 years to live. It doesn't matter. Because neither things present nor things to come will separate me from his goodness and mercy that follow me every day of my life. Whew, this is just the introduction, guys. We haven't even got to verse one yet. Oh. So I have to say all of this because we love him. Because he so loved us. Our hearts so full of thankfulness and security and joy and confidence. That now, responding to his love, I want to fight my flesh. I want to fight the spirit of this world. I want to fight the devil. I want to fight everything that's a lie and exalting itself against the knowledge of God. It's the love of Christ. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ, what? Compels us. Because we judge thus, we discern in this way, that if one died for all, that happened, right, Jesus? Then all have died. We were with Christ when he died and when he rose again. But then he changes it in verse 15. For he died for all that... Those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. That's, that's reasonable, isn't it? This is our motivation. Because he died and rose again, conquering sin and death, and we can now go to heaven. So the rest of my life in this flesh, let, let's say you had another 50 years to live. 18,550 days. Do you know what 18,550 days in heaven is? Like a nanosecond. 
maybe. <laughs> a nano of a nano of a nanosecond. Compared to eternity? Well, it's such all hard being a Christian. You've got to deny yourself, take up a cross, and obey Christ. Oh. Just, I don't, I, I don't mean to be mean, but I, I think most of you guys are working on more like 9,000 days or below. Okay? I don't think anybody, not too many people here have 50 years left. There are a few of you. Okay? But, but you know, let's just be gracious and say half of that. You've got 25 years left. We're, we're looking at 9,000, 10,000 days max. Okay? I don't think I'm going to be living to 110. I, I know what you're thinking. Brian, there's no way you're 60. I know. I know. <laughs> Good genes, that's all I can say. Good old DNA. But <laughs> we don't have that long, guys. To this point, at this moment, don't we want to go out with a bang that for the last 10,000 days of my life, I just let the love of Christ compel me, motivate me, encourage me every day to deny my flesh and to live in obedience for him. And then to have a joyful, abundant entry, a ticker tape parade when we leave this body and go to be with the Lord. Well, let's start the sermon now. Verse 1. <laughs> the prisoner of the Lord. Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. I love that. He's not a prisoner of the Jews or of the Romans. He's an innocent man in prison. And he's not bummed about it or irritated. He's like, wherever I'm at on planet Earth, I'm living for God. If I'm kept on a boat, I'll be a, I'll be a guy on a boat for the Lord. <laughs> if I'm stuck in the desert, I'll be a guy who lives in the desert for the Lord. If I'm living in the mountains, I'll be a guy, a mountain man for the Lord. If I'm in prison, I'll be a prisoner for the Lord. I, I'm just living for God. It doesn't really matter. Life is so short. And Brian said, I probably don't even have 10,000 days left. So what's a big deal? Okay. Beseech you, I beg you, I entreat you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. The word worthy, axios, is in its root word, a balance or a measure or a weight. Weigh it out. God's Holy Spirit's in you. You are one day going to be holy as he is holy. You're a king and a priest unto God. Measure it out and, and have the joy of living that way. So therefore, we just covered it in the introduction. David Guzik says, Paul spent three chapters spelling out in glorious detail all that God did for us freely by grace. Now he brings a call to live rightly but only after explaining what God did for us. So let us measure it out, weigh it out. Axios, count it worthy. Figure it out to walk worthy of this thing God has done, raising our spirit from the dead. We're alive, putting his Holy Spirit into our lives that out of joy and gratitude we can walk obediently. There's three important thoughts on this. Number one, we understand who we are in Christ is the only foundation of this worthy walk. Number two, we don't walk worthy so that God will love us, 
but because he does already love us. Number three, our obedience to God is motivated out of gratitude and not out of a desire to earn merit. Verse two, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. We're going to stop and look at this for a little while. With lowliness and gentleness. Christ taught this so clearly in his life about humbling ourselves, living in this humble mindset. As a matter of fact, if you were to just go home and say, I'm going to read one of the Gospels, you would be amazed how this theme is exampled by Jesus, but repeated in scenarios, whether it's with sinful people or poor people or with children or with Gentiles or Samaritan, he is constantly telling everybody, humble yourself. Live a gentle and a quiet spirit. Live in a lowliness and a gentleness of mind. Do you realize how opposite of the world? If we live 10,000 years, we would not have got this. Because it just so goes against the spirit of this world. It goes against the flesh that we live in. The human sinful body is telling us, be in control, be in charge, get to the top. And once you're at the top, everybody does the grunt work. Everybody serves you. But Jesus gave an example to his apostles and taught them in this very point. For example... In Matthew 11, 28 to 30, he said, Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find a rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the only description we have of Jesus, and that he gave it himself. Was he white, black, Arab looking? We don't know. Could have been any of those. Well, we know he had a beard that got plucked out. We know he wore a robe. Of course, everybody did. But this is what we know about him. So if you're going to draw a picture, make sure you get down that he was gentle and lowly of heart. And that painting everybody around him are going, oh, I have peace when I'm with Jesus. I have a joy when I'm with Jesus. My soul is at rest when I'm around Jesus. I'm comforted when I'm in Jesus' presence. That is his description. And I don't think we'll ever have that kind of effect on people unless we ourselves, truly to our very core, are also lowly and gentle Jesus taught and showed right at the very beginning on the Sermon on the Mount, this in three different ways. The very first of the Sermon on the Mount, the very first thing he said, blessed are what? The poor in spirit. This is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I don't think he's necessarily saying mourning over somebody dying. I think it's mourning over their sinful body and that we want to live more obedient life. Then the third one is, blessed are the meek. There it is. They shall inherit the earth. Three different ways of saying lowly and gentle of heart. Notice he never taught, blessed are the rich and famous. Come on, we know that's true, right? 
I mean, you watch whatever TV show you want, and they're telling you, blessed are the rich and famous. Too bad you aren't, sucker. That's what they're saying, right? Blessed are the rich and the powerful. Blessed are the superstars, movie stars, rock stars. Blessed are you, the captain of the football team or the captain of industries. We could go on in that list, right? I mean, that is common knowledge. The richer, the more famous, the more power, that is where you want to be. Jesus says the opposite. He, Jesus, is making it clear we're not just calculating on earth, we're calculating for eternity. Yes, those who are lowly and gentle of heart may be at the bottom rung on earth. That's why Paul said, if there is no resurrection from the dead, let's go eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. Okay? But if you're looking through eternity, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, (laughs) those who are going to be on the front row of the heavenly afterglow, are going to be those who had a gentle and quiet spirit, who were lowly and gentle of heart, right? Those are the ones that are great in God's kingdom. Hang in there with me on this very two words. In Luke 22, 24 to 27, now there was also a dispute among them, the apostles, which of them should be considered the greatest? <laughs> Can you imagine how fleshly this is? But they didn't, they didn't seem weird to them. Of course, we're all trying to be the greatest here. Whoever's at the top, the other 11 guys got to serve me. As soon as Jesus is gone, you know, the, the, the other 10, the 11 of you guys got to do what I say. And that's where I want to be. I want to be the one calling the shots. That's our human nature. In verse 25, he said to them, the kings in the, of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority have over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, He who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. He who governs as the one who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. We see that over and over in the the Gospels. In Matthew 20, verse 25, 28, Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the ruler of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be the first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, I came to die, literally, so I could serve the lowest of the lowest. That is my ambition in life, that before I die, I would have served everybody. The lowliest of the lowest, I was their slave. And then to take all the gunk and the goo and the horror and the sin and the lust and the greed and the deep wickedness of every man who had ever lived from the first sin of Adam and Eve to the last sin ever committed, one who had never sinned, take all of that garbage on himself. 
and bear the punishment of everybody's sin. And there he, for the first time, experienced, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? What has separated you from God? Did God separate himself from you? No, your sin has separated you from God. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of Christ. Boy, did he serve us. If he didn't serve us, we would be dead in our sins. Matthew 23, 11 and 12. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant and whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. You guys know this story in John 13 well, don't you? where Jesus washes their feet. But I want to read it anyway. I just want to wash you in the word. I want to give ourselves to the reading of the scripture, as Paul tells Timothy. In John 13, 1, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come and he would depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Wow, beautiful. And supper being ended, and the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and he had come from the God and was going to God. The NIV says, the Father put all things under his power. The New Living Translation said, the Father has given him authority over everything. So Jesus, having loved them to the end, he realized he's getting ready to get arrested and, and crucified. They're starting into the Last Supper. And Jesus, realizing all power, all authority, has shifted from the first person of the Trinity to the second person of the Trinity, the Father's will. Having all glory, all power, all authority, that under the name of Jesus Every tongue would confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. With all that power and authority, what did he do? He put his robes aside, took the outer garment of the slave, the servant of all, the least of all servants, and he began to wash their feet. Notice in verse 4, he rose from the supper and laid aside his garment and took a towel and girded himself, verse 5 of John 13. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said, Lord, you're not washing my feet. This is humbling. This is humiliating. Have you guys ever had somebody wash your feet before? Anybody? Raise your hand. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Okay, a, a few of you. You know what I'm talking about. It is hard. And typically, if you know a foot washing ceremony is going to happen, you really wash your own feet really well. <laughs> Make sure you've got the best socks you have. You don't want a hole in it, you know. Even then, after you've scrubbed your own feet and put a little perfume on there and did everything you can to make it lovely, it's still, I, I can't explain it to you. It's deeply, deeply humbling. So I get what Peter was saying there, but Jesus answered and said to him, what am I doing to you? Do not understand now, but you will know after that what do we learn? As we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Christ cleanses us and keeps cleansing us from all sin. Do you realize Jesus is washing your feet every single day? Do you guys get that? Every day, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, 
ever lives to make intercessions for you, who is never condemning you, but always for you. He's also every day washing your feet. So you'll be without spot or blemish or wrinkle. So Peter, this is something you need to accept now and until the day you die, that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is constantly at work washing your feet, humbling. Jesus answered and said to him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. In verse eight, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no part of me. Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but all my hands and my head. And Jesus said, no, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you, because he was referring to Judas. But when he had washed, in verse 12, their feet, taken his garment and sat down again, he said, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If you then your Lord and your teacher have washed your feet, you also ought, must, like you must be born again. You must wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent him greater than him who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Do you hear that? If you know these things, blessed are them if you do them. And uh, I'll tell you what, I am humbled every week by those who come early and set up the chairs and set up the sound and set up the social media. I'm humbled right now with those who are giving up time to be in here, enjoying the worship and the music to, to teach the children. It humbles me every week. I, I feel like I should go do that. I should let somebody else preach and I should go teach Sunday school. And I, I've actually said that and I'm planning on doing that. But it's just such a, a joyful thing to know, well, they've taken the greater part. They're washing our feet. Blessed are them. The Apostle Paul taught this powerful passage you probably know well in Philippians 2, 1 through 8. Therefore, if there's any consolation of Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, like-minded with Jesus, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Listen to verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself even further and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Galatians 5.13, Paul writes, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but what? Through love serve one another. Peter adds, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time or the right season. James in the same way says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord that he can lift you up. God wants to exalt you. God wants to lift you up. God wants you to have greater fruitfulness, but it always will begin with that humble, lowly heart. Micah had it right. One of the great prophecies ever prophesied by any prophet 
Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. Ah, what's good? What's good? What does the Lord require of you? To do justly. To love mercy. No problem there. But I think the third thing is the most important thing. To walk humbly with your God. So long-suffering, bearing with one another. So this gentleness, this lowliness of mind. Then with this long-suffering, which is the same word, patience or endurance, right? Bearing with one another. We have the continual challenge to look past each other's idiosyncrasies, each other's weaknesses, and a million other things that annoy us. You know the older you get, the more annoyed you get, right? I think you've lived long enough to see quality people and you know you're not around them anymore. (laughs) But yet, what do we do? There's so much love in our hearts and it's not about them serving me, it's about me serving them. It's not about my interest being met here, but it's about me meeting their interest before my interest. What What a lovely way to live. How can you not have a wonderful church if everybody just does that? I mean, right? If everybody comes with this humble, lowly spirit like Jesus, we would all find a rest for our souls. We would all find this joy in being around these kind of people. If you want to have a successful marriage, that's it. You die more than your spouse dies to themselves and serve them. They serve you at this level, you get mad and serve them at this level. And you just try to keep out serving each other. You'll have a great marriage. There's all the marriage counseling you ever need. Put their interests first. Put their needs first. Be their servant. And don't let them outserve you. Win the race. Be the lowliest of the low. And then in verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Important note here. It does not say create a spirit of, work, of unity. What does it say? Keep the spirit of unity that the Holy Spirit has already created. We can't create that spirit. Only God in his power can create that spirit of unity. It's our duty to recognize that spirit of God in unity and then to keep it. Another important note is this is not saying we we should all be in the same building worshiping together in the same church. It's just not reality. Too many personalities, too many different cultures, too many different languages. And, And the fact is, I think it's a beautiful thing when you have a bunch of nationalities worshiping together. But, you know, could you imagine how miserable the Pentecostals would be at the Baptist church. They're just sitting there the whole time going, I can't even feel free to lift my hands here. I'd like to clap on this one, but they'd probably kick me out. How was church today? Just making me mad. That's the way the Pentecostals would be. But imagine the Baptists moving to some small town and all there is is a Pentecostal church. Can you imagine how miserable that guy would be? That's why Pastor Chuck used to always say, praise God for Pentecostal church. Don't sit here and be mad at us. Just go. Just go join them. They, they got plenty of chandeliers over there. Swing from all the chandeliers over there. 
In the same way, if you're Baptist, don't, don't be mad that we're charismatic and lifting our hands and clapping. Don't be mad at us. Just, there's a Baptist church right around the corner. It's awesome. Love the pastor. Love the church. Don't, don't sit here and, and be miserable. I'm, I'm so glad that there's different churches that will meet your personality or maybe even a particular theological minor point that's majorly important to you. There, there's some other people that have that same thoughts. Go join them. But, but there is a wonderful thing. So I, I think it would be absolutely crazy to say we need to all be in one corporation in church. Matter of fact, Spurgeon said this, it is not a desirable thing that all churches should melt into one another and become one for the complete con- confusion of all churches into one ecclesiastical corporation would inevitably produce another form of popery. Since history teaches us that large ecclesiastical bodies grow more or less corrupt as a matter of course, huge spiritual corporations are, as a whole, the strongholds of tyranny and the refuge of abuse. And it only as a matter of time when they shall break into pieces. This is that's just common knowledge of history, right? Eventually, these big organizations get corrupt and you splinter off. So you don't, I just want to make a note here when talking about the unity. Whatever church divisions happen, and they will happen. I, I, I don't, I, I know a lot of pastors. I minister to a lot of pastors. I do not know one church that's been around for a decade or two that hasn't seen a church split. They're going to happen. It's not good. It's not right. It's not healthy. It's people that really need to grow, but instead they'll go somewhere else and then repeat what they do two or three more times, splitting other churches until hopefully, eventually somebody grabs them by the air saying, it's you. <laughs> you create division wherever you go. It's something about you and your character and your nature and, and you're bent. You're weird. You need help. Don't go to the 10th church and cause another division. Stay here with us until that gets hammered out of your character. That's what needs to happen. But unfortunately, it it rarely does. Those people typically don't listen to the authority they're under at the moment. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 7, Woe to the world because of fences. For offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. In Proverbs 16, or Proverbs 6.16, six things God hates. The seventh is an abomination. He tells us later in verse 19 what that seventh thing that's an abomination greater than all the other offenses is. Those who sow discord among the brethren. Or the NIV says a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Jesus says of those who cause offense in Matthew 18.6, It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the depths of the sea. I'm just simply saying, yes, divisions are going to come. And those who cause divisions, they think they are the righteous one doing the division. All I'm saying to you as a matter of a friend, don't be a part of it. Don't don't go near it. Don't touch it. Don't have anything to do with it. Because it is not the spirit of submission. It's the spirit of... That is a rebellious spirit, whether it seems righteous or not, have nothing to do with that group causing division. I I say that as a friend to a friend. Well, finishing up here this morning, 
verse four through six. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who above all and through all and in you all. There is one. The Lord our God is what? One Lord. In other words, he's saying here, we have the most important things in common. Whatever your culture, whatever your language, whatever part of the world geographic you live in, whatever your style of music, whatever your taste of food, you know what? When it comes down to it, we have the most important doctrinal things in common, and that should be greater than any potential differences we might possess. Look at these things we share in Christ. One body, one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Just a note here. People say, one baptism? Which one is it? Well, I I counted up nine different baptisms between the Old and the New Testament. Two of them in the Old, seven in the New. But there's only one baptism that's essential. Paul talks about this very thing of unity and brings up which baptism he's referring to in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 and 13. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Listen to verse 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into what? One body. There it is. Whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, we've all been made to drink into that one spirit. When we come to Christ as our Lord and Savior, he makes us a part of his body. We're, a body, we're part of the body of Christ. He goes on to explain this in verse 13 to 20. For one spirit, we are baptized into one body. For in fact, the body is not one, but many members. If the butchers say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, Is it therefore not of the body? Or if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, is therefore that's not part of the body? If the whole body is an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would be the smelling? And now God has set the members, each one in the body, just as he pleased. There's the baptism. He baptized all of us into the body just as pleases him. He's baptized you to be a hand, you to be a foot, you to be an ear, you to be an eye. And if there are all one member, where would the body be? And now indeed, there are many members, but finish it off with me, yet one body. We've been baptized into that one body. That's the baptism. So yeah, water baptism is important. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is important. Baptism into his sufferings. Paul thought that was being baptized into Christ's sufferings, that was an important one. So yeah, there's a lot of baptisms, but there's one that's essential, that we are a part of the one body, and we are unified in that one body. Now Paul's going to pick up on that point, and it's going to be a glorious as we finish off next week. Let's have the band come on up, and Lord, we come before you right now, Lord, and oh, you've washed us in your word, Lord. You, you, we know it's your heart that we would have a confidence, a security, a joy in our salvation. And that would never be wavered. That we would never lose faith in your grace. We would never lose confidence in your mercies. That just as David, after he had sinned so horrifically, learned through that year of, of torment, he learned 
that you are never letting him go, that he was in your hand, in the Father's hand. You are never letting him go. Nobody would snatch King David away from you, that your mercies and goodness would follow him all the days of his life, whether it's in a valley or a mountain, things present or things to come, and that he with absolute certainty would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so, Lord, we come before you right now, and out of that joy, out of that confidence, out of that appreciation, we know that you're calling us to obey you, and we hear it today. You want us to have this lowly, humble, serving spirit, putting everybody's needs before our own needs, everybody's interests before our own interest. And there would not be a person in the body that we don't wash their feet. And that the greatest among us would wash the lowliest foot. And that nobody would be puffed up. Oh, I'm a hand, I'm an eye, I'm an ear. I'm the greatest. That no, we just realize we're just one little part. That we together cause the growth and the strength in the body. Every part doing its share. And, and Lord, we thank you that you have placed us in your body. And just like you said, when two people are married, that, 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 that they come together, that what God's joined together, let no man separate. In the same way, you've placed us in your body as your bride, and you're never going to separate yourself from us. And that you've got a hold of us, and you're never going to let us go and separate from you. And if there's any prodigals right now that have lost confidence in your grace and they felt condemned because of their struggles. Lord, bring them back to you right now with joy and confidence so they can be fruitful. And out of that confidence that your mercies are new every morning, walk in a fruitful life. If there's any here today that for the first time you've really heard the gospel and you want to believe upon it, which is John 3:16. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Right now in your heart, that's all. Believe in your heart. Jesus is Lord, and God's raised him from the dead, and you'll be saved. I'm going to pray a prayer, and if this helps in expressing the attitude of your heart, let it be. Let this be the moment, like the woman who touched the hem of Jesus' garment, and she was healed after 12 years. Let this be your hem of the garment, this prayer, and just pray, Lord Jesus, forgive me, cleanse me, wash me, Thank you for your mercies. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. And Lord, I just want to surrender again and again every day afresh and anew and my life into your hands. I now from this point forward, because of love in my heart and appreciation for your grace and your mercy and your kindness and, and, your, and just, just loving me to the end, to the end, to the end, you love me. I just want to live in a fruitful way for you. Your kingdom come, your will be done in my life from this point forward. Lord, all of us pray this again and again, Lord. And thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.